invite you to turn to Romans chapter 14 this evening or this morning and the text is verse 17 for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit as we turn to this text I remind you of a very simple matter the Word of God is one book it is made up of 66 parts or little books, but there is an overarching, absolutely amazing unity in this book. It is just amazing how over literally centuries something could be so unified and brought together by God's Spirit. And that is because when we come, though, to Romans chapter 14, and we're going to pick up today the theme here that is central to this verse in verse number 17. That is, the kingdom of God. It is not something that Paul invented. It is a unified theme throughout the word of God. And we need to keep that focus today. It is not something that Paul came up with. It is throughout the tenor of Scripture. And so our theme this morning is coming into this kingdom and entering into the life of the kingdom. And I ask you three questions of the text this morning. They're very straightforward. And here are the three questions that I'd like to examine with you in this text. Number one, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Number two, what do kingdom people pursue what do they pursue what do kingdom people pursue and number three what enables kingdom life what enables kingdom life so three questions what is the kingdom of God what do kingdom people pursue and what enables kingdom life now verse 17 Paul is addressing the church of Rome. Think of a question here. The Roman city is the center of the greatest kingdom of the time. It is the home of Caesar. The Caesars are the kings of the kings, the emperors of a great kingdom. Every kingdom has to have a king. You cannot have a kingdom without a king. You think of the name, the United Kingdom of Great Britain. You take away the king, the monarchy, the queen, it will really not be a kingdom with a king. It becomes a republic. Now the Roman Empire that Paul was living in had many kings, literally perhaps dozens to even hundreds. But there was only one king of kings, the great Caesar of the kingdom. And where is that kingdom now? The kingdom of Rome. It is gone. It is over. It is finished. But there is another kingdom that is far greater than the kingdom of Rome. 
it is still here. And it is still being added to. And it is still advancing. That is the kingdom where the King Jesus Christ reigns. And it is not over. It is abiding and going on. When Paul writes this beautiful verse, for the kingdom of God, he is contrasting it at one point to the Romans who live in the eternal city of Rome. But it is not an eternal city with an eternal king. It is a king that will be killed, murdered, executed. They will come, they will go. The kingdom will fall apart. It will be vanquished by the vandals and the hordes of the pagans of Europe. But this kingdom is very different. At one hand, Paul is looking at Rome and he thinks about a greater kingdom. But another hand, he turns back to the great prophecy of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And there is Daniel living in another kingdom, in the realm of Babylonia and Persia. And those kingdoms will come and those kingdoms will go, whether it be Persian or Babylonian, Greek or Roman. They will come and they will go. But what does Daniel see in, in Daniel chapter 7? He sees a king. He sees a kingdom. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, should come to him. And his dominion is an everlasting kingdom. Which shall not, shall never pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Word of God is one. The great themes of Scripture are unified in one. As Daniel saw, as Daniel prophesied, as Daniel compared, it wasn't David, it wasn't Babylon, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't Greece. There is the one who is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King. And his kingdom is superior and different. He is the reigning king. We have a king who reigns over this kingdom. This morning I want to turn with you back to the book of Matthew. To see that there is a unity between what Matthew's gospel says and this verse as we come to it this morning. In, Den in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, John the Baptist is the one who is going before the king. And what does he say as he goes before the king? He is announcing something. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When something is at hand, it means it is about to happen. It is immediate. And John is there. He is sounding the trumpet. He is the courtier as he goes through the streets. He is sounding the trumpet. He is blasting the trumpet and he is saying, the king is coming. 
The king is at hand. The king is walking the streets of Jerusalem. He is in Judea. He has come. And his kingdom fulfills the great prophecy of Daniel. His kingdom shall bring the nations of the world to himself. His kingdom shall be eternal and it shall never end. He will reign forever and ever. He is the king and he is at hand. He is here. And as John the Baptist announces, the kingdom is here. Repent. In other words, Israel, wake up. Change. Change your direction. Change your course. Come to believe in the fulfillment of the King. He is here. Come to change your life, your way you live. Turn away from sin and embrace this kingdom and embrace Him now for He is at hand. He is at hand. And what John is issuing the Baptist there As the king is at hand, he is saying to Israel, come and enter into this kingdom now that is being prepared for you from the very beginning. Come and enter it. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus said a little later in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 where he is announcing the the end of the world, but he is giving this word. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. There it is, Daniel 7, 14 again. And then the end will come. But his kingdom is coming. And the question today is, what is the kingdom of God? And the question to you is, Are you in the kingdom? And are you living under the reign of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you embraced Him and said, I believe and I have turned from my sins and I am a subject of this King and I am under His reign? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is found in those who embrace the King. Those who embrace His reign over their lives and turn to Him in faith and repentance. It is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Redeemer in the Gospel in your life. And it began that very day when you were awakened by God's grace. To see the glory of Christ, the wonder of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. That was the beginning of the kingdom. It's embrace in your life. And it's advancing in your soul. It's advancing in you. As you advance in purity. It's a kingdom that is guided by the Word of God. It has a standard. For this King reigns by His Word. And everyone who embraces that Lord, that King, coming under His banner and His embrace, they are all the nations that are gathered under Him. Now, I need to say something here. For the kingdom of God 
is not a denomination. We love the word denomination. We've been using it now for just a few hundred years. It's very short. We are the product of all the children of the 1550s. So basically four or five hundred years ago, we started splintering and we've been doing a good job ever since. We have our denominated churches. But the kingdom of God is different. There's a tension in the Christian life. Here's the tension. It is loyalty to your local church and denomination. But it is never raising that loyalty and that embrace to the point where the kingdom of God is obliterated or ignored or made inferior or even second fiddle in the orchestra. There is a tension. Paul is not speaking about here, well, I belong to the Methodist Church, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. I belong to the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I embrace the Free Church of Scotland. Paul is speaking of something very different. And we need to beware in terms of application as we answer this question, what is the kingdom of God? That we hold the tension and keep the the things in balance or else we will go off the line spiritually. Many people have. There is a tension that has to be kept. I think of great men of God who have been asked the question, who are you? I remember one of my theology professors being asked that question in class, and he gave an answer. He gave five points to his answer. You can still remember them. Recently, I was reading again. That question was asked to the great Scottish preacher, John Rabbi Duncan. Who are you? And it was very interesting in the answer again. He said, keep the order in this answer. The first is most important. The last is the least important. There you have it. And more or less what he would answer the question is, who am I? I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian. He would go on and he would define other things. And the very last one was his denomination. Now do you see, brothers and sisters, there is loyalty which is good and right to the local assembly and to the, and to the denomination. But there is always attention. The kingdom of God is bigger, is larger, is vaster than anything called a denomination. There's no free church of Scotland in Thailand on Jesu Island in Korea, in the Soviet, former Soviet Union nations. But the kingdom of God is at work and is there. All those who have embraced the reign of Jesus Christ 
all those who are under the great guide of His Word, all those who are looking unto Christ from every tribe, people, and nation, under that glorious gospel and that directive of the Word, and with that same Catholic universal spirit, not, I didn't say Roman, please watch it, they are embraced and part of that glorious kingdom, the kingdom of God. They're submissive, worshipful, and they're under the reign of the king of kings. Now there's the second question. So what is the kingdom of God? Question two, what do kingdom people pursue? And Paul is answering that question here. Once we have our definition clear on the kingdom of God, he begins with a negative. We want to begin with the positive, but Paul gives the negative, so let's deal with the negative first of all. The kingdom of God is not. What is it not? It's a, not a matter of eating and drinking. Well, Paul is first of all saying you do need to eat. He is not denying you should have your lunch or your dinner today and maybe you've got it all prepared and you're hoping and you're going by faith that everything is going to work out and the service will be on time and my oven will go off and everything will be great. Paul is not condemning any of that. What he is condemning is something else. Two things at the same time. Number one, there are some Christians who still have their training wheels on. And they, don't, they haven't quite graduated to a bicycle without training wheels. No, maybe some of us can't even remember training wheels. But maybe some of you can remember, and maybe you still have you got your training wheels on your bicycle. But you're hoping one day, if I could just get them off, then I'll be a real boy, a real girl. I'll be grown up. Well, you'll notice back in verse 14, there was a discussion about clean and unclean, kosher and unkosher food. Leviticus was the training wheels. And the training wheels were this. God's people were being taught separation from the world, distinction. That's the point of it. The clean food, the unclean food, was to create a wall of separation to say, we are in the covenant people of God. They are out of the people of God. This is the children of God. This is not them. And by looking at the food, it sort of reminded you and said, no kosher, kosher, non-kosher. It was like a training wheel that one day would come off. Jesus Christ came. And you will notice what begins to happen in the, the epistles. The training wheel is coming off. The Gentiles are coming in, and they, do, they are still allowed to eat pork. We don't put the training wheels on them. Because the wall of separation is being defined. Those under Christ, those not under Christ. Those embracing the kingdom. Those outside of the kingdom. And we live spiritually to that direction. And Paul will talk about going deeper in that. But he is saying, be careful. Don't go back to the old training wheels. Now I think there's a second problem that happened in Rome, and that's in chapter 14, verse 2. 
And that is that the pagan Gentiles, some of them, were going to the market. And if they went to the market, there might be an idol stand nearby. There might be some priest who would sort of stamp the meat or stamp something. But you may not know the stamp was on it. But the priest may have done something. And you would sort of say in your conscience, no, I can't eat that, I'm going to be a vegetarian. And then the Christians sort of argued about this. No, I could eat meat. No, I'm going to be a vegetarian because I can't trust the stalls of the city of Rome and what they're selling here. I think that's part of the issue. And so it becomes an issue of idolatry and its practice. So you've got two things going on. And what does Paul say? No, no, no. The kingdom of God is not about that kind of kosher and non-kosher eating. The kingdom of God is not about idolatry and clean and unclean at the idols and vegetarianism. You can be a vegetarian if you want. That's up to you. The kingdom of God is not that. And if you're stuck there, Paul says... You've got a problem. Because the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. Watch the food. Watch those externals that will wreak havoc in the kingdom. And so then Paul goes from the negative to the positive. Well, he tells you that's what you can't be focusing on, those rituals, those ceremonies, those external matters, which there should be an allowance of liberty and grace. You can do your own application. And he says, I want you to focus on these three things. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not the whole pursuit of the kingdom. But it's Paul's summary pursuit here. And it's very clear and simple. Here, kingdom people will pursue three things. The first thing they're going to pursue is righteousness. Righteousness, of course, is an aspect of holy living. It's an aspect of moral living. It's an aspect of piety, devotion, holiness, purity. Anyone in God's kingdom is going to have some new desires. Those new desires are planted in God's people when they're awakened and they become members of His kingdom. And that desire starts to lead you in a new transformative direction. It is the direction of righteousness, a new life. Now, just quickly, allow me to illustrate what Paul is saying here to show that Paul is not divided against Jesus, and Paul is not divided against the rest of the Bible. The great Sermon on the Mount of the Lord Jesus Christ is about life in the kingdom. And how does the Sermon on the Mount begin in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, What is the first thing he says to them? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they are needy spiritually, broken sinners. Blessed are people like that. For theirs is what? 
the kingdom of heaven. They have a desire to enter into the kingdom of God because they want to be under Jesus. They know they're broken. They know they need a redeemer. And if you know you need a redeemer, a savior, because you are a sinner and you are guilty, come. This is the door into the kingdom. Come into the kingdom. Because I am unrighteous and he is righteous. And this righteousness now becomes a desire that you, you want to pursue. And what does the Lord say then in verse 6? Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for what? For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And what do kingdom people pursue in the words of the Apostle Paul? The kingdom is a matter of righteousness. I have new desires. I've come into the kingdom and the new desire of the kingdom is righteousness, purity, holiness. And I don't measure up. But the hunger is there. The desire is there. The goal is there. The falling may be there. The grace of God may be there. And is there. But there's a transformative, righteous desire. And there's a standard. You even think of the way Jesus speaks about it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is holding to the standard of the Word of God, the righteous banner of God's Word. And as it goes into the world, there's conflict because the righteous standard of God's Word produces conflict wherever it goes. It demands spiritual change. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's new desires. There's new standards. The standard of the Word of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. It is not about becoming a Pharisee and entering into the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what is Jesus saying? Righteousness here must not only be external, it must be of the heart. Righteousness here must not be just a list. Righteousness here must see by principle and apply it as it's needed. Chapter 6, verse 1, what does Jesus begin there? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Righteousness is not just putting on a show of religion. Righteousness is that which is done, not even known by others or seen by others. And you gave the cup of water. You did the good deed. And God said, I rejoice. Righteousness then is the pursuit of the kingdom of God, but it's deeper than the training wheels. It's a new desire. It's with standard. It's not pharisaical. It's not showy. It's a new pursuit. And what you see is this. 
What do kingdom people pursue? They pursue a new transformation. God is not finished with my holiness yet. Second thing kingdom people pursue that Jesus talks about, or Paul talks about here in this chapter, is critical in the context. That is peace. You have had peace with God. Your conscience should be right with God. Now you need to pursue peace with your brothers and your sisters in the kingdom. Think about them. Respect them. Show liberty towards them. Grace towards them. And pursue it. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. You've entered into the kingdom of God. You knew you needed a redeemer. You knew you needed a savior. You're entered into the kingdom of God, and now you're pursuing the pursuits of kingdom-like people, righteousness and peace, peace-making, which is the allowance of liberty in chapter 14 of Romans, which is the allowance of respect and grace, which is the allowance that not all shall see things in the secondary matters of the faith or in this world in the same way. But we shall all see the Redeemer in the same way. The one who reigns as our King. That is the great prayer of Psalm 133, the great benediction of Psalm 133, the great pursuit of of peace that can never be achieved humanly because it needs the Spirit at work. So let the church on earth as the kingdom pursuit pursuing and pursuing people pray, Lord anoint your people as we face the training wheels of division of this world. Keep us one. It is a great prayer. It is a great word of exhortation of Jesus to be a peace-making people. It is a great prayer of John 17 that we be bathed in the Holy Spirit and we will find that unity of the Spirit and it will cross the bounds that men and women have erected and those dividing walls will be broken down because the Spirit has been at work and the kingdom is advancing because the kingdom is eternal and we have kept the balance right between the denomination and the greater kingdom and the greater pursuit of the kingdom and we are making peace and we pray it in the unity of the Lord. Now, Paul said three things. You should pursue righteousness, peace, and I believe a third. The cultivation of joy in the Spirit. Now, it's a little different. I believe true spiritual joy arises from the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32, verse 1, correct? But it also comes as an abiding fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a replacement. And it is and cultivation in the great garden of the Spirit. 
Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, the Paul, Paul's testimony to the church at Thessalonica. He saw their joy in the Spirit, and he was amazed by it. He, he understood that joy. You see, the joy of the Lord to those who have been suffering saints, and yet they exhibit the joy of the Lord. I still like going back and watching the old movie Chariots of Fire in the early 80s. I think it's still a classic. And I recall hearing from his widow, Eric Liddell's widow, who lived in Canada after China. She said when she first saw the movie and was taken to the studio to see it, she was disappointed by one thing. She kept on saying, he was a joyful Christian. And I felt the movie didn't portray enough of the joy. Well, you can be the critic. She was the wife. And she made her criticism known. But it always struck me. You read reports of Eric Little dying in the concentration camp, teaching little boys and girls to play soccer, football, so that they could find joy in their suffering and realize that there is always hope. You find the joyful Christian releasing a mother, a young woman, and he stays on, and he will die in that camp. The joy of the Lord amid suffering. God's people are different. They have a different pursuit. Their conscience is made joyful. Their spirit will grow in the cultivation of that spirit. Their lives will often be impacted with sorrow and suffering. And yet, they will be blessed in the Spirit. Now that takes us to our third question, which you've already seen answered. What is the kingdom of God? What do kingdom people pursue? What enables kingdom life? And what does Paul say? He adds that on right at the end of verse 17. In the Holy Spirit, who enables us to enter the kingdom? Who enables us to grow in kingdom living? Who enables us to pursue perseverance of the saints unto the day of glory? It is He, the Holy Spirit. And what you see missing in the much of this kingdom life that people externally had fallen into missed the Holy Spirit. It was the human spirit that was being exalted, whether you call it the Judaizing heresy or whatever. But it is not the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of man. The kingdom of God is established by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is pursued by the strength and blessing of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he uses means, his word, his people, prayer, but it is by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit 
He is the transforming one unto holiness. And kingdom people want to become holy people by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul can add in a very gracious, kind way, verse 19, so then, Christian brothers, sisters of the kingdom, let us pursue, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding amidst trying days. Every generation just faces another issue. The issues come, the issues go. But the Spirit abides with His people. And the Spirit enables us to pursue the life of the kingdom. Let us run by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit in His kingdom. Amen. Let us pray.